Nature has long been a place of contemplation and bounty, a place to go where we might be able to find ourselves or the meaning of life, dinner for the night, or important things about the way to be a good human. Both in the developed and the developing world, our contact with nature is diminishing rapidly. In the U.S., nature is seen now more than ever as a place to escape our technologically inundated lives. For some, this means taking a Walden week, or a week without technology, inspired by Henry David Thoreau's little cabin near Walden Pond. For others, it's walking around a couple of days a week without headphones. For those who can afford it, luxurious retreats at resorts promise a tech-free getaway. For others, camping or barbecues do the trick. And for some, like my guest today, awareness of what's going on in the natural world and interpreting those natural signs has become one of his life's passions. Okay, uh, my name is John Hughes. I guess my official title at Harvard is um, Donner Professor of Science. It's D-O-N-N-E-R, Professor of Science, but I'm a physics professor for all intents and purposes. Welcome to the MEMS podcast. Dr. Huth is a particle physicist at Harvard, working in experimental particle physics. He's also dedicated himself to mastering primitive navigational skills. I first wanted to know how those two very different areas, particle physics and primitive navigational skills, became so important. The, the first one is longstanding. Um, I mean, I've, I've always liked physics and... Um, I guess I always liked experimental physics. One of the issues being that, um, oh, how do I put this? You know, there are things that can be discovered, <laughs> if you like, you know, truths that are out there that are um, not necessarily something somebody tells you. And I just find that greatly appealing um, in the sense that, you know, it's, it's not part of the social fabric you know, where you could be deceived, I suppose, in a sense, and um, and also just fundamental truths of nature are interesting in that they're, nature seems to follow these, these interesting rules, and um, I suppose at some level you can say they're mathematical, but really, you know, that hides some workings that are going on in kind of the, the smallest scales, and the workings that are happening in the smallest scales also dictate things like the structure of the universe as well. And so I just find that, that kind of frontier of, of knowledge fascinating because <laughs> we don't really know what you know what's on the other side of it and all sorts of odd things arise. I remember when I was in fifth grade learning about special relativity and the speed of light being a constant and just kind of being enthralled with that. So it's just been kind of a lifelong pursuit, I suppose. Another one of Dr. Hughes' passions, primitive navigational skills, grew out of that curiosity. He's even written a book about his journey and techniques called The Lost Art of Finding Our Way. The, the navigation, um, you could say, has kind of a similar aspect to it, except it's discovering things that are right in front of our eyes. Um, but we often neglect. But it was, um, I guess I, I started doing it um, kind of through the result of being close to uh, uh, fatalities. The um, I was kayaking, let's see, so 2003, in the summer of 2003, I had um, rented a recreational kayak um, in August and was paddling off the coast of Maine near a house that uh, we had rented. And I knew the area because I had paddled there the year before, but I was not 
terribly experienced and kind of a, a novice problem, I suppose. And I was crossing a large embayment, and large fog started to descend and envelop me. And I didn't have a compass, which was stupid. There were a lot of things that were stupid, but it was one of these things where I didn't know enough to know that I was being stupid. Uh, however, I um, asked myself which way the wind was blowing and which way the swells were coming and some the noise of waves crashing on a large beach. And I used those as a way to keep my bearings. And um, I was able to maintain my bearings, and I knew that in about 20 minutes I would arrive at some shallows where waves would be crashing in opposite directions. And uh, sure enough, I got there, and I then paddled back around the island. I would have gone out to sea if I'd gotten lost because it was just there was nothing but open ocean to the south of me. But I made it back in one piece. I realized that I should have had a wetsuit on or something to keep myself warm because the water temperature was so cold, but you know I didn't capsize, so that didn't turn out to be an issue. Um, so I did buy a wetsuit. Let's see. So fast forward about three months, so it was Columbus Day weekend. 2003, and I, I went out for a paddle with my kayak, and it was a really nice, warm, sunny day. And um, I started paddling for a little bit. I was just wearing kind of shorts and a T-shirt, and I got splashed a bunch, and I realized it was cold. So I went back and put on a uh, wetsuit and went out and paddled again. And this time I did notice the wind direction, and again, fog enveloped me. <laughs> it's crazy, but um, but since I had, knew the wind direction, I used that as a natural compass and um, was able to find my way back to land and follow the land. Every so often it would disappear because of the fog, but then I keep, you know, found it again. And um, no real problems. Um, it was actually kind of enjoyable. I pulled up my kayak and took a shower and went out to the movies with my kids and came back and had dinner and um you know that was that for that day the next day i went out paddling again and the harbor master came up to me in a boat and stopped me and asked if i'd seen two young women so what had happened was at exactly the same time i had launched when it was sunny there were two women half a mile down the beach um who uh, went out in recreational kayaks and um told their boyfriends they would be back in about, I don't know, half an hour, let's say. It was a fairly short period of time. And when they didn't return after an hour, the boys called the authorities. And unbeknownst to me at the time, there was a massive um, search and rescue mission that was going on, went on like all night long. So they launched when it was sunny. In fact, my wife was walking down the beach and saw them launch their kayaks. And and then the fog rolled in, presumably just like for me, um, and they didn't come back. So the so that was Sunday. So the next day, the uh, so that day they found the two kayaks tied together, but nobody was in them. And then the following day, which was Monday, they found the body of one of the two young women, and never found the body of the other. And um, it's uh, basically what I'd call survivor's guilt. So, you know, I was doing exactly the same thing, exactly the same time under, you know, identical conditions, and I lived and they died, and um, so that got me kind of obsessed. And first I didn't know what to do, but then what happened was it turned to an obsession with navigating using natural signs, since obviously the wind direction and the swells had helped me. 
so I started kind of a program where I would memorize the positions of stars in the sky. I kind of used the coordinate systems and developed a way of relating the positions of stars in the sky to positions of locations on land and use that as a way of kind of memorizing everything. And so I developed a whole system. And then after a bit of time, I realized that in a sense I was reinventing the wheel because there were other cultures that did this. Um, And so I started to learn about Polynesian um, voyaging, um, Micronesian voyaging, of which actually there's somewhat better records of that, um, how the Norse voyaged. And it was also kind of an interesting exercise in um, separating out truth from fiction because, you know, travel and adventure and navigation and all that stuff is um, it's exciting. It's exciting to read about. A lot of people like to write about it. Um, but But there's kind of a lot of um, exaggeration that can go on or outright you know, fiction. And so part of the exercise was to actually try things out on my own and sort of see what works and what doesn't work and, and that kind of thing. And then eventually um, I was chair of the de- physics department for some number of years. And then I guess there was a point where um, I had a long sabbatical and I was thinking that it would be fun to try to see if I could teach this to other people because one of the things that happened to me was I also the way I looked at my environment changed. So, you know, shadows meant something. It actually (laughs) meant directionality, for example, Uh, the shadow of the sun, for example, Um, you know, the stars in the sky. And so I was looking at the world differently, and I thought, hey, maybe this is something that could be taught to others. So I did a freshman seminar for two years and still uncovered all sorts of I don't know, weaknesses in the literature, as it were, you know, things that I thought were really cool, and then I started to study them more carefully, and they sort of fell apart in my hands. Um, And then I decided to teach a, um, what's called a gen ed class, which is basically classes that allow people to fill, what's the word, um, requirements, some sort of of, uh, disciplinary requirement in the sciences. And there wasn't a book for it, so I wrote a book, um, which even pushed me further to kind of, sort out truth from fiction, um, and now it's a pretty stable course, but, you know, from time to time, you know, new things come up. I went to the Marshall Islands and Central Pacific and have been studying how they do wave piloting. I have three different forms of GPS, a compass, and probably a bunch of other tools I don't even know about on my phone, and definitely feel sometimes I rely a little too heavily on digital maps or signals to tell me what's going on in the world. Just this morning, I woke up and checked the weather app instead of looking out the window next to my bed to see what the weather would be like. You'd think that looking to natural signals to tell us about the weather or where we might be might be more intuitive than it is nowadays, since it's been a staple of the movement of civilizations for thousands of years, but I guess we take the easy route out and look to a screen. It's fascinating that there's a whole course on primitive navigation at Harvard now, but does Dr. Huth encounter any pushback from students who just don't want to give up technology or feel like it's a waste of time if the tools that make things easier are right in front of them? I start out with being pretty basic. Um, there's, there's a baseline. So I do a set of assignments. Almost all the assignments are outside and they're all an activity that they do on their own. Um, the very first baseline is they have to try to walk due west from um, a landmark in um, Harvard Yard, and they typically find that they aren't as good as they thought they were. 
uh, a lot of people, you know, if, they're, if I ask you to do a certain wayfinding task, um, particularly going into an unfamiliar environment, people tend to kind of overestimate how well they're going to do. And so, you know, they aren't going to get into danger because it's a pretty well-populated area, but, but they tend to find out that they didn't do as well as they thought that they might. And so rather than to assert that they might not be as good as they think they are, um, it's basically kind of, you know, they demonstrate to themselves that they aren't as good as they think they might be. Um, so that's kind of the starting point, which kind of, you know, gets them into the mode that, okay, this is, there is something I can learn. And then we do, we step up to different skills. Um, there's um, learning how to use a compass, it's somewhat arbitrary, but um, it, it allows me to sort of teach a bunch of other things like magnetic fields, the idea of triangulation, also uncertainties. One thing that I find a lot of students, especially ones who aren't in the sciences, don't really appreciate that there's not an, neither an infinitely precise answer nor is there something that's completely unknown, but you know our knowledge is kind of bounded, bracketed in some sense. And so that's where the compass um, work comes in. Also teach them their paces, and then they have to walk from one location to another about a mile away and kind of chart the relative location by counting their paces and using the compass to do that. At some point, we then transition to doing STARS, where the culmination of the unit is we go to the roof of the Science Center, and they have to orient themselves by looking at um, the stars at night and be able to name the stars and figure out their latitude by finding the altitude of Polaris. This is difficult for the students, and I guess I do get some pushback from this. Um, I just gave a talk to um, some people in a sea kayaking club last week. Uh, it was an introduction to celestial navigation, and um, and everybody got really confused about the stars. Um, it's part of it is, is it's a visualization problem, and it just you have to kind of keep going at it and going at it and going at it. And, and one of our problems is that, um, at least as Westerners, we um, think a lot in terms of directions of lefts and rights with respect to our body, as opposed to thinking in a more absolute coordinate system, east, west, north, and south. And so how you view the stars physically is going to depend on the orientation of your body, whether you're looking north or you're looking south, but then in those cases, easts and wests and lefts and rights get you know turned around. And so it, it's a real struggle to kind of get to the point where they can go to the roof of the Science Center and see things. But the flip side of the coin is after two weeks of that struggle, um, they it's really kind of a revelation to them that you know, all of a sudden this thing becomes real and they can name the stars and, and it's like everything kind of falls into place all at once and it's very gratifying to see that. So that's both a struggle but kind of a breakthrough at least for people who are willing to put in the effort. Um, but it does involve a lot of work and, and it, at first it seems counterintuitive. And then we do a unit on weather where there's all this, you know, a lot of the weather is happening. Uh, around you and you can see it and there's a lot of physical processes that go on in the weather that can be seen and they have to try to make predictions for whether it's going to rain the next day or um, something like that and name the clouds and that sort of thing. So uh, 
in a nutshell, that's kind of a lot of the course. I mean, I'm omitting a lot of details, but um, I would say the beginning part, you know, is kind of a straightforward process once they kind of realize that they don't, you know, possess as much of the skills in this as they thought they might. But then when we get to the stars, it's um, it's a struggle, but typically they're able to kind of overcome that struggle, and it's kind of gratifying to see that. I can remember navigating my way through a course with a compass and a map at camp, and the sense of gratification that came from doing something with just my senses and a simple magnet device. And for me, when I've had those victories, it almost makes me want to chuck my phone to the side, pick up a hiking stick, and never deal with technology again. It's a very distinct sense of accomplishment, and I'm not even an expert. I felt like that feeling, the change in the way I want to interact with technology, must be more pronounced for someone like Professor Huth. Well, we're talking about a transition from about 2003 to the present. So, um, you know, I, I, I would say probably yes. I mean, I'm. Um, I mean, I do use um, sometimes when I'm just stuck behind the computer. Like a lot of people, I'll just use um, you know social media as a kind of way to you know. If I write a paragraph, you know, I'll look at something there just to kind of distract myself. But that's because, you know, a lot of what I have to do is, is being um, stuck behind the computer. But but I have to say that, um, you know, when I do something like, uh, you know, multi-day backpacking trip or a multi-day sea kayaking trip um, or something like that, it, it's a real relief. Um, I mean, it, I don't know what it is, but there's something about unplugging from technology that um, really kind of refreshes me. Um, one of the things that I do on a regular basis is I bicycle commute in and out of um, Harvard. And, um, and I do it, you know, all through the wintertime unless the conditions are really, really bad, like there's fresh snow or something like that. Um, and I just find it's really healthy for me because, like, being in a car and having people honking at you, and which happens a lot in Boston all the time, uh, having the radio kind of blaring at you, even though I suppose you could suggest I could turn off the radio, it just really helps me um, to be alone with my thoughts. And, and I don't know, I can make, you know, sort of breakthroughs and that sort of thing when I'm kind of away from technology. So... I, I think it probably the primitive navigation stuff really kind of did push me to try to spend more and more time away from technology um, because I do find it healthy in a lot of ways. Um, you know, not that I am proselytizing to get people to, you know, put down their cell phones, but, um, you know, I also try, for example, like if I'm walking down the street, I don't always succeed in doing this, but I'm walking down the street, you know, the cell phone just stays in my pocket um, and doesn't come out, <laughs> for example. Um, and I suppose, you know, we've all seen people who get extremely cell phone distracted and almost bump into you, that kind of thing. Um, so that happens a lot around Harvard and Boston, I suppose. Does technology impact our sense of meaning, the very way we see the world? Yeah, I mean, I do think that to some extent it, it atomizes, you know, meanings and facts and things like that. And it also it also makes it difficult to think for oneself in some ways because we're bombarded by other people who are trying to assert their thoughts or opinions and using technology to do that. And, um, 
you know, that can be very distracting because it, it sort of robs us of agency and our ability to kind of think through things. I mean, you could say that, you know, it's always been around in a sense with, with newspapers and, and um, you know, print that's been available for, I don't know, you know, for who knows how long. But on the other hand, you know, we back in the day, we were more prone to, you know, read the newspaper and then put it down and then do something else. And now there is this possibility of kind of a constant stream of this. And so I think it does, it does kind of atomize knowledge and, and does rob us of, of kind of, kind of agency in arriving at our own conclusions about meanings. So do we trust computers more than ourselves? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. I, I worry that that's the case. I mean, I haven't really, I haven't really interviewed enough people on this point, but um, I, I do think people tend to trust information that comes from a computer more than they would trust it from them, them, themselves. Um, and, you know, this, this has gotten people in trouble. I, I don't know, it's, it's very difficult to disabuse people of, you know, notions once they get it in their head. And a lot of times the notions they get in their head come from, you know, online sources of one sort or another. And um, they don't really apply kind of a rigorous filter. And then um, I think everybody is susceptible to confirmation bias. And so I think there's a term called automation bias. And so I think there is some of that going on where, you know, if a piece of information comes to you from a computer, it must be right because it came from the computer without sort of stopping to think that, well, <laughs> it's not really coming from the computer. It's coming either from a computer program that's running, which could have flaws, or from an individual who, you know, may or may not, you know, have the facts right. When I read the title of Dr. Huth's book, The Lost Art of Finding Our Way, I definitely thought of stories of people driving straight off of cliffs or into lakes because their GPS said to, even though it was abundantly obvious from just the visual cues around them that the GPS was wrong, because they trusted that because the GPS was a computer, it knew what was going on, which it didn't. And in that sense, I thought of wayfinding as a very physical, literal thing. But as I read more, I happened on some discussion of how physically losing our way and being more removed from our physical environments through technology actually also had an effect on social relationships, or what some call social wayfinding. There was this, this interesting correlation between spatial cognition and social cognition, um, not the least of which is language. And so in English, for example, uh, you would use um, height as a designator for status. So the higher up somebody is, the higher their status is. Um, turns out this is universal in, in humans. It's just reflected in the language um, somewhat differently. I have to be careful when I say universal. I mean, that would imply that I've studied every single language on the planet, which I haven't. But at least as far as I can tell, it seems to be ubiquitous. And... Uh, and there are other designators like front and back and that sort of thing. Then I read a, read a chapter in a book by a psychologist named George Lakoff, which is, the book is called Metaphors We Live By. I need a chapter on exactly this in the English language. And I guess I started, I started to, to look into it more, and it really held um, sway. And one of the interesting things that I began to become aware of was that as new views of space, either, you know, locally or, um, you know, outer space like the solar system or something like that, as these things changed, that um, new social concepts emerged. 
and so, so I put together a new freshman seminar uh, on this topic, and um, I have a sort of a proto book that exists that ex explores this. So I go back to like relatively isolated cultures and um, sort of dissected them because obviously I'd already looked in detail about it, but then found a number of other sources locally. Some other anthropologists work with Native Americans, um, and then had a few other kind of jump-off points and looked at um, modern images of space and um, the social metaphors that seem to arise out of them. Um, so it, it seemed like a fairly rich topic, and I'm not, I'm, you know, my guess is that um, the brain, you know, however our brains work, and I'm not asserting that I know the answer, but my suspicion is that the brains, our brains probably use um, you know, spatial cognition is a sort of template for other modalities of thought, and social cognition would be one of them. Basically, as we become more removed from our physical world through technology, that actually might be changing the way our brain thinks about our social landscapes and navigates social relationships, since social navigation seems to have something to do with actual physical navigation as well. That doesn't mean it's bad. I hope people don't listen to this podcast and think every episode I'm saying, ah, technology will kill us all, because that's not the case. It's more of a study in how technology may impact us in ways we don't even realize without some conscious effort to take a step back and change habits. With that in mind, Dr. Huth spoke earlier about the atomization effect of technology. So what's something he would say to people trying to de-atomize their lives? I would I would think to cultivate some awareness of what's going on in kind of in the natural world. So this would be silly things like looking at shadows cast on the ground and sort of correlating that with time, sort of paying attention to the character of, of sunlight, you know, both in the sky and, and kind of its effects on um, you know the way you perceive things. I can give you one example. Let's see. So in the wintertime, at least for those of us in the northern hemisphere, the sun is low in the sky, and the character of, of um, light is rather, you know, dreary. And, um, but as, you know, you go closer and closer to the summer solstice, the sun gets higher and higher in the sky, and it's much brighter. And I think... You know, I even realized this as a kid at some level that when I was young, I had some association. So this time, so I'm in Boston. I grew up in Philadelphia, so, you know, kind of this roughly the same latitude. Uh, I had some awareness even like sixth or seventh grade that age of, um, you know, the character of sunlight in, let's say, late February, early March as being brighter, but yet here it is still winter. And it seemed like something of a paradox to me. And now I just realize that what's happening is the sun is indeed getting higher in the sky, and there's just this kind of lag time between you know the sun going to a higher declination and and kind of the amount of heating sort of finally kicking in and taking over and changing the seasons. So you know there's things like that that I think people can actively you know develop some awareness from, and it's kind of soothing in a lot of ways, um, but it takes a little bit of thought. You know, you need somebody to kind of put you in that <laughs> in that space to kind of put down the cell phone and start to look around, um, you know, and then I guess, you know, going deeper, pay attention to the trees, the, the dendritic pattern of, of branching in the trees, um, 
I'm just sort of looking outside my window here and, and, you know, sort of looking at all the things that I'm observing. Um, so we had a bunch of snow recently, so how the snow is, you know, melting and cakes up and how, you know, there's some history to, um, you know, when the snow fell and the temperature cycles and how um, these things are just reflected in the pattern of snow. The Inuit actually uh, used these ways as this sort of thing is wayfinding. So, you know, they knew the history of, you know, when a storm came and which way the winds were blowing and all of this would leave its markings in the snow. And, you know, by knowing that history and knowing how these things affect patterns of snow, um, you know, you can just sort of see it all kind of written out uh, in front of you. So, you know, just now I'm looking out the window and I say, okay, well, there are the, there are the shadows and the shadows are doing X and such because it's getting you know, closer to noon and, and the sun's at a certain position in the sky and so that's why the shadows are the length they are and pointing in the direction they are and the snow, you know, well, you know, it's been since Monday we had the snowstorm but it's been cold but we've had some temperature cycling so there's some ice on the ground and some icicles hanging and then I look at the trees and I see this branching pattern and that obviously is a maple because I recognize the branching pattern even though there aren't leaves on it. So there's all this kind of high density of information just looking out my window that I can spot and um, although you know it, it, it's probably either as is, is, um, random and extraneous as somebody tweeting something on Twitter um, but it's a little bit more you know close to home and, and direct because it's going to tell me something about what my bike ride into work tomorrow might be like. This podcast is produced, edited, written, and hosted by me, Sage Smiley. Because it's my senior capstone, and of course I'm going to do all that myself. If you have any comments, questions, hate my voice, or think I'm missing something big, shoot me an email at memspodcast at gmail.com. That's M-E-M-S podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>